you're listening to a podcast and you're listening to this podcast. So I'm pretty sure you are not afraid of laughing and some tough talk. And because you're a listener, you're probably an audiobook listener, too. I know I've been listening to audiobooks since they were called Books on Tape. And that's why I'm going to tell you about the audiobooks that my company, Flamingo Audiobooks, produce. I'm currently working on a spy thriller series by John D. Trudell, whose protagonist is a former CIA guy sheep-dipped with a new legend, George Raven who now works in deep black ops. His role is to protect the country's foremost paranormal, Josie, who has scary, smart insights into some of the nation's biggest secrets. It sounds crazy, but Trudell makes it all work. It's amazing. I've got an offer for the first 10 of you who email me at victoria at victoriataft.com. You receive a free copy of the latest Raven series books, Raven's Redemption on Audible. Put free audiobook in the subject line. Of course, the audiobooks are also available on Amazon as well. Raven's Run is also out if you want to start from the beginning. And Raven's Resurrection is in production right now. If you like spy thrillers like the ones written by Vince Flynn, Kyle Mills, Brad Thor, Ben Coase, you're going to love the Raven series. It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. Nick Riccata is a Minnesota attorney who also runs a successful YouTube channel on what is now becoming LawTube. Riccata Media is what he calls it in his YouTube channel, blew the doors off not only other law channels, but many mainstream news channels as he live-streamed the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. And you, Nick Riccata, called this trial one of the most important legal trials I've ever followed in my lifetime, and I'd like to know why. Well, uh, it was it was an interesting conflux of events, right? This this trial happened at the time of the, uh, or the, I shouldn't say the trial, the, the events of the trial happened during the summer of 2020, which was a hot button in America on uh, both racial issues and with the election pending. So this event itself um, garnered national attention when it happened and people were immediately politically divided over the over the subject, the subject of self-defense and um, the propriety of, of carrying a long-barreled rifle around with you uh, during a riot. And whether or not this was a riot or a protest, all of these issues kind of came to the forefront. So then, you know, over a year later, we actually get to the trial and people's ideas about it have been brewing and stewing for the entire time. And the most interesting aspect of all of that was the fact that the media itself had basically, I don't want to say covered up, (laughs) but they had omitted (laughs) so much of the story to be charitable. But really, uh, I I think cover up might be an appropriate term. And you see that still as people who are discussing this case have very, very basic facts wrong about it. So with all of that, you Mm -hmm. combine in the fact that this incident of self-defense is probably the most documented incident of self-defense the United States has ever seen enter a courtroom. 
Um, there is so much video from so many different people and different sources that captured the event from different angles and perspectives. And uh, you also had several eyewitnesses who were there as well um, with their own political ideologies, as some of the people would be more favorable towards protesters. And one of the key witnesses was more of a, um, I'll call it a right-leaning news source uh, journalist. And so you have this vast array of opinions and perspectives, both physical and uh, political, coming in to determine this case that everybody was concerned about. That's, that's what I think makes it um, one of the most uh, interesting and important cases out there. And it goes to a critical set of rights, your right to keep and bear arms and your right to defend your own life when it's threatened. That's right. I appreciated your coverage so much. Uh, and I felt like your coverage and the observations of the people you just had join your stream whenever they could helped out the defense in this case a lot. To what extent do you think that was? I mean, in terms of helping the defense help Kyle Rittenhouse? Well, this is the benefit of um, real coverage in real time of a case. I don't know how much the defense... Uh, attorney team was monitoring what was going on on our channel, but we definitely saw what w that they were monitoring stuff on social media in general. So I have to think they probably did see some of the coverage. Now, they're in court for eight to nine hours a day. I think it's hard to imagine them watching an, an additional eight to nine hours of what they just did in review, but I would be very surprised if they didn't have someone on the team at least grabbing highlights or looking for uh, highlights that other people were bringing out about things. Um, mm -hmm. it, whether or not it was on our show uh, alone, it, it certainly was out there in the media. And you had uh, various people on Twitter. One of the guys named Darth Crypto was doing breakdowns of the video and talking mm -hmm. about how the uh, the prosecution's interpretation of this mystery drone video um, was incorrect in showing, uh, you know, different angles and, and different enhancements that could be made about it. And, and we saw some of those um, arguments and statements on social media actually percolate into their arguments and statements in the courtroom the next day, especially as the trial really went on. So mm -hmm. um, the, the interesting thing about that is it's a resource, right? It's a social media coverage of this type of event is a massive resource uh, that that attorney teams should really be taking into consideration. And I've been talking for a couple years now about how law offices need to be savvy to what's going on if they're trial or their their case has any type of uh, media coverage potential in the mm -hmm. social space. And, and with the uh, several of my panelists, of course, have their own YouTube channels and we all cover different legal subjects. And so that that area of exposure is growing. And so these law firms need to be thinking about how they, one, utilize that to their advantage in writing their pleadings and framing the case for public consumption as well as court consumption. But they also need to be aware of how to utilize the feedback that they're getting in real time to crowdsource uh, better processing of their case. 
And for the layperson like me, I really appreciated the observations. Like, for example, sometimes when you brought up the fact that the defense didn't object to certain things, uh, when you decided that there, this particular time was a moment in which the defense should call for a mistrial, I mean, there were certain things that it helped me understand the story better. I, I follow Andrew Bronca's uh, coverage of the Rittenhouse trial. I followed that initially and, in, and, of course, continue to do so because he's just so brilliant and speaks nor- in normal language to people. Um, uh, and I appreciated that very much. But it wasn't until Viva Fry put that one video out on Twitter where you guys were all reacting to Gage Grosskreutz re- uh, cross-examination that it, that I think you exploded. Isn't that true? Yes, uh, that that video clip that uh, Viva grabbed um, and and shared that caught on. It went viral. It showed a bunch of people where to find lawyers watching this thing happen. And after that, we really saw the numbers start to tick up. Of course, it was it was uh, retweeted by people from uh, Jack Posobiec to uh, Tim Pool to even Megan Kelly. So this. A little clip from a little YouTube channel um, got a whole lot of exposure in very uh, sort of mainstream media circles uh, and in alternative media circles that were much bigger than than my little corner of the Internet. Right. And uh, so having that happen is is what really got a bunch of eyes on it. And then once Mm -hmm. people saw that there was a place you could go and and get so much more than a raw feed, uh, you could get. Uh, expertise and educated opinions on this that are not filtered through um, a three-minute mainstream media segment with corporate interests behind it. They went, "Oh my goodness, uh, I can I can see something that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world," and that's that's what I think uh, really made it not only explode initially, but kept bringing more and more people back day after day. I think the just the response that. Um, my YouTube channel got should uh, we were beating PBS. I mean, that should tell everybody everything yep. they need to know. And I don't think anybody thought that uh, that when you total up the streams, I mean, there's there's probably 400,000 people at any given time watching this trial happen live. Like they're just sitting watching a court proceeding. Um, that's crazy. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and who knows how many people were watching on, on other sources than just YouTube. But uh, I don't think anybody predicted that the case would be big in that kind of way. Um, we haven't really seen anything like that since OJ. And then eventually, you know, although I think uh, Barnes is always on, uh, I, eventually Andrew Branca also came on and was featured on your stream as well. And I felt like that was just sort of an endorsement of what you were doing and his voice was heard. And I thought that was that was really terrific. And you you really set the standard. I think you've changed everything. I hope so. Uh, I, I hope it's it's a model to show um, that alternative media can be far more honest than traditional media. And and that's not, I mean, I have plenty to condemn traditional media about, but I'm not actually doing that with that statement. If you think about what effort, time, and resources it would take for a Fox News or a CNN to put together what we did, I mean, we had uh, probably 100 and 
50, uh, uh, 130 to 150 hours of coverage live of this trial with somewhere at any time between three and 10 um, lawyers as experts watching it. The amount of just logistical issue that a mainstream news source would have covering that is, is it's something that they can't do. But on YouTube, because we all kind of individually benefit from that and we're, we're using our time and getting compensated for our time by the audience themselves rather than some corporation, we're able to, to do it, to sit there and spend time and take that risk of dedicating eight straight hours of programming a day um, to this trial. And, and yeah, it, it was wonderful to have Andrew Branca on and, and it was great to have uh, Robert Barnes pop in because these are, these are two of the guys kind of at the top of the legal game in, in various fields and Branca specifically on self-defense. I mean, he's an authoritative voice uh, nationwide and so you, you can't get that on other, uh, on other mediums. It's, it just mm-hmm. doesn't work out the same way. Another thing I felt you guys did uh, service to point out were all of the prosecutorial uh, missteps, uh, mischaracterizations of evidence. Uh, I mean, it was, for the most part, gobstop, gobstop, but I can't remember my own language. Uh, Gobsmacking, that's it. That's the one. Uh, it, It was really shocking, actually, to me. What was the most shocking thing? Uh, was that the case was brought or that the prosecutors had witnesses that they hid or that the prosecutors lied about the facts and the law in their final argument? <laughs> I know. A, such a... It's a strong <laughs> list. Um, I, I was initially shocked that the case was brought. Well, let me, let me backpedal on that just a, just a hair. I initially figured the case would be brought, but I thought the complaint that they would write would be a little more slanted against Kyle. But once I saw the the criminal complaint and it read like a defense attorney response to a criminal complaint, that's when I became confused. It's like, okay, if you're going to admit all of this, all of this beneficial stuff for Kyle Rittenhouse in the the initial pleading, why are you bringing this case? This reads Mm -hmm. like a self-defense case. Um, but at the end of the day, you still had two bodies in the street and one guy in a hospital. And that is going to almost always be justification for bringing a case. So I wasn't super shocked that it was brought. I mean, I, I do think it shouldn't have been brought. Uh, I think they had laid out the case against themselves very well. And, and that should have just said, you know, we don't need to do this. But once it was there, the... The biggest, the biggest prosecutorial misconduct for me was the introduction of the emergency drone video and yeah. how that played out and how the prosecution routinely misconstrued and mischaracterized their usage of this evidence. And I've, I've been saying it everywhere I go, but it's important to stress to people that the only evidence that the prosecution ever put forward that Kyle Rittenhouse directly provoked this attack by raising his gun was the claim, was this drone footage that came in Friday after the trial started and they sent a lower resolution version of the video to the defense. Whether they intended to do that or not became irrelevant when they tried to cover up and apologize for their actions that were clearly prejudicial 
to Kyle Rittenhouse. And so that and their explanations about it and their their use of this footage. Oh, yes. Uh, the, the way that the testimony came in about him raising the gun was a police officer testified that he looked at that drone footage on his iPhone and determined that Kyle Rittenhouse raised a gun at Joshua Zminski. And, and that should bother everybody that that yes. was allowed into this at all. Because the entire provocation argument and jury instruction came solely from that detective's testimony. Yeah, his little, his eye, what did you, what did you guys kept refer, his, keep referring it to, to it to as? Zoom. His pinch to Zoom. Right. He, and, you know, we know how that crap is, is like. It's not that great, really, frankly. Not, but. Yeah, certainly not on video. Um, and, and again, looking at a looking at a six inch uh, screen, even though iPhone screens are wonderful. Thank you, Apple. But um, looking at a six inch screen and determining a capital murder case based on a pinch to Zoom that no one can replicate by the nature of you literally do it on your phone and it's not captured in any particular way is a real problem. And when you are introducing evidence and you're not directly testifying to the evidence, you have to be able to truthfully assert that what you're talking about and what you're showing to the jury is a fair and accurate representation of what happened that night. This detective wasn't there, and he has no way to verify through a pinch to zoom that that is a fair and accurate representation. And again, this became the entire theory of the case for the prosecution, and they continually tried to downplay how much of their case it was to the judge. And I just felt their lack of candor before the court was disgusting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, there was so much misconduct. I checked out with the state to see if there are any complaints against Thomas Binger and Jim Krause over it, but I haven't heard back. Um, and I, I hope people do that, or at least people, the players involved who need to do that, do that. Somebody needs to get their ass kicked. Yeah, I, I fear that Kyle will not want to pursue anything with it because he'll want to move on to the next phase, which, based on his interview with Tucker Carlson, looks like a campaign of civil lawsuits against people who have uh, misrepresented him in public. So that'll be interesting to see. But I, I don't see him going after uh, the prosecution. I think they should. And I was just on Tim Pool's show and talked with a, a gentleman named Cash Patel, and, and mm -hmm. we talked about the possibility of going after um, uh, not a malicious prosecution claim against the, the, the prosecutors, but a deprivation of civil rights claim, as they directly impacted his Fifth Amendment right in their trial um, and uh, may have imp impacted his uh, Sixth Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights during the uh, introduction of that drone footage and their misrepresentations that followed. So Some, somebody needs to pay for that. I, I fully agree. And the nature of the prosecutorial system is that if the defendant gets off of the crime that they're accused of, uh, the misconduct that took place during the trial often gets just swept away. The only time you really get to the root of the that misconduct is if the person is found um, to be guilty and then they bring it up on appeal. But even then, you're not going after the uh, prosecutors. Typically, uh, you're going after the, the decisions of the judge. So it's it's a system in which the prosecution gets to ride free all the time.
Yeah, exactly. I think Andrew Bronca's Kyle's Law addresses some of that, and I think that's important, and I hope that wherever that needs to be passed, and probably most every place, it will pass. And if you can't, if you are lying as a prosecutor about a particular character of, the, of your defendant, if you're, if you're lying about the facts, if a cop is lying about a probable, in a probable cause document about uh, that this was an individual who was doing X, Y, and Z, and it turns out that they just sort of made that up. I mean, somebody should pay for that because that almost destroyed Kyle Rittenhouse. That kind of thing, a white supremacist and that sort of thing. That stuff was they were lies and they needed to stop. I, I fully agree. And and it's important for everybody to remember that um, the criminal justice system that we built in this country was founded on the idea that you are actually innocent until proven guilty. And yeah. and your rights must be respected to the maximum extent possible. Um, and if the state can't make the case with what's available to them, then that's just too bad for the state. Um, one, of, one of the big things you, you mentioned was sort of concealing witnesses. Uh, and that, no. that is this, uh, this fellow jump kick man who has since been um, allegedly identified. and It's a miracle! Right, and, and it was also alleged that, that uh, he had specifically sought immunity from the prosecutor's office and they turned him down. So their, their protestations that they didn't, weren't able to identify him appear to be completely false. But you also have Joshua Zeminski. And one of the critical arguments in the case was, well, if he pointed his gun at Joshua Zeminski, why don't you bring him in to testify about that? Yeah. And they made this sort of allusion to the Fifth Amendment uh, that he, he might not want to say anything because of a pending criminal charge. But it's almost like the prosecution could offer something as compensation, like immunity from that criminal charge, to allow him to testify to this critical fact of the case. And yeah, if, isn't there use immunity? Yeah, he could. Isn't that a thing? Yeah, he could. They could simply say, uh, well, we are going to, uh, we, we promise we will not be prosecuting you. And this is what happened with Bill Cosby, right? Mm. We promise we will not prosecute you yes. in relation to uh, this particular set of circumstances. Uh, and and then then he no longer has a Fifth Amendment uh, privilege. Uh, he he doesn't have it because he's not in danger of prosecution, so he can't incriminate himself. And so you bring you bring him in, and uh, then he can testify to Kyle raising the gun. But the problem is they they didn't want to do that for whatever reason. Well, I'm sorry, state. If you don't want to do that, you don't get to make a roundabout. Uh, an end run around this inconvenient witness by having a detective say what you want him to say about a video that no one gets to see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. Were you, um, what did you find from the Kyle Rittenhouse interview with Tucker Carlson that surprised you? Um, it surprised me that he did it in the first place. And it surprised <laughs> me that, uh, it, look, I'm not Kyle's lawyer. I would not personally have him um, doing a media tour this close after the uh, the incident, but it seems like um, Tucker Carlson's team was kind of embedded in the Kyle Rittenhouse defense um, from the start. I, I believe there's some allegations that that they were filming many aspects of the defense itself, um, and that you know that may be true. I don't think that's the wisest strategy in a high profile criminal prosecution. I think you know having Having your client walk free is the number one priority. And then uh, 
the reason it surprised me that he did it, it comes in from one of his statements, which he's now getting a little bit of heat over. And it's probably unfair, but that's the reality of his life now is he no longer gets fair. And that is that uh, he supports Black Lives Matter. And um, and this was never about politics or anything like that. When his initial representation from John Pierce and Lynn Wood was overtly political uh, and and the fact that he's going on Tucker Carlson, which is a politically charged show, and saying a very politically charged statement like, I support Black Lives Matter. It's just, to me, it's the wrong tone. And so that's the biggest shocking Mm. thing that I drew out of that. Other Mm -hmm. than that, um, I found the interview to be very genuine. Uh, And Kyle comes across, you know, very genuine on the on the witness stand as well as in the interview. And and he just he exudes the fact that he was maybe just a naive kid who got caught in a bad situation and defended himself. Um, That that narrative comes through in, in everything I've seen him do so far. So that's good. But again, uh, the political nature of of the media tour at this juncture, I I don't know if that's the best move. Barnes said that his first attorneys, Lynn Wood and John Pierce, were terrible and they should have been booted off the case, which they were summarily. But uh, I didn't realize that they left him sitting in jail so that they could raise more money to make him look more a more sympathetic character to raise more money. That's shocking. Yes, that that part of the testimony uh, was very jarring. But I I also remember that statement being made um, significantly earlier. So that oh really that didn't that didn't surprise me very much. Um, I I don't remember when it was, but I, I believe it hit some of the smaller news cycles uh, a, a few months back that this had probably when the transition of the legal team actually took place that, oh, gotcha. that they had kept him around there and and so I had heard about that. Um, and, and it is really, really frustrating. And, uh, Lynn Wood and John Pierce, you know, did a lot of damage to Kyle and they did, uh, they potentially did a lot of damage to his case, um, by, by having him make some of the appearances that he made while he was on his, uh, conditional release. And, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty on that, but again, um, Kyle has indicated that it seemed like they wanted to make his case about a cause and the only cause in criminal defense should be your client. <laughs> you know, leave the mm-hmm. leave the causes for the civil cases that can follow. But uh, keeping this keeping this kid out of prison for the rest of his life should have been the concern. And um, and of course, yeah. we also saw that Linwood uh, became very focused on other political matters as well is a safe way to word that, I think. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Nick Ricada, I have to ask you, what did you think of the defense efforts in the Kyle Rittenhouse case? But you have to answer it like Mark Richards. <laughs> well, you know, the real thing we've got here is they got the client acquitted. They got the result you needed to get. And that's the important part of all this. No, that 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 really is the most important thing. Um, uh, I have been no no secret critic of uh, Mr. Richards and Mr. Sharafsi. Um, I thought 
for what it was worth, uh, Miss Wisco and her contribution, uh, her speaking contribution um, when she was tearing apart uh, Kraus on his <laughs> drone lights was absolutely masterful. That was that was phenomenal. But um, I had a lot of cris- criticisms of Mr. Richards and Mary- Mr. Sharafisi. Sharafisi. I don't know how to say your name, buddy. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, they had the client, they had the file, and they got the victory, and that's what matters. So. I think uh, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback things, and and we tried to make that very clear on the show. We are giving people our interpretations of how we would do things and then using that as education pieces. You could object here. You could do this. This evidence shouldn't come in. And we we had some things that we thought were hardline issues that they should have done, but they they won, and that's that's the key. It was their jobs on the line, their reputations, and Kyle's – liberty at stake we we had the luxury of saying things from a from the safety of our own homes did you were you surprised as i was by the judge's lack of media literacy um yes (laughs) a little bit uh but when 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 i think about it i think about this guy has been doing uh criminal well he's been doing all sorts of trials for um you know, I think he kept saying 40 years, uh, not mm-hmm. all of those as a judge, but a significant number of them as a judge. And uh, it doesn't matter how long you're practicing law. Most people are never going to get a Kyle Rittenhouse case. You know, most judges, most prosecutors, most defense attorneys will never have a case that is this this impactful. And I think he knew that the case was somewhat important. But this is one of Robert Barnes's criticisms of the defense team that uh, that I'll defer to his expertise on. But his his suggestion was that the judge needed to be made aware of how politically charged this case and the potential jury pool was going mm-hmm. into it so that the judge was managing this. But I, I I found it to be very unwise of the judge to be going out and reading the media yes. pieces about him during the trial. I mean, you tell jurors not to do that for a reason. Judges act like they are above bias, but they're not. And you could see him reacting and even, I think, ruling in response to some of those media criticisms, which was absolutely not helpful um, to the to the case. And I I think it was it was a disservice to the judge who was otherwise. Um, pretty well versed in in accurately um, putting the law into practice in the courtroom. Lori Lightfoot, the fantastic uh, mayor of Chicago, said that the judge in the Rittenhouse case put his thumb on the scale in favor of Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, what would you say to somebody who is a little closer to her than I do? Uh, <laughs> I would I would say that uh, I would say Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. I would also <laughs> say that Lori Lightfoot is completely incorrect. Um, I, I the if the judge put his finger on the scale in any way, it was towards justice. Um, but uh, or how do I even how do I even get into this? Is the question the amount of evidence that came into that case? that should have never, ever seen a courtroom is frankly staggering. Oh, yeah? Um, when you... So this, this... I mentioned earlier, it's one of the most documented cases in history. And yeah. all of the different video that was brought in by both the prosecution and the defense. Now, when you consider that the amount of people 
who brought in video that was recorded and were actually cross-examined comes down to about three. About three individuals uh, who, maybe four, who recorded videos were actually put on the witness witness stand. And (laughs) the number of overall sources that they had was well north of 10. Mm -hmm. Most of those videos came in from one detective who testified that he authenticated these videos by going on Twitter and YouTube and downloading them. Oh, come on. This is a detective who was not present during these events. I mean, he was somewhere in the uh, outskirts, right? In the police lines um, that were not... But he's not witness to these events. And so he's going and saying that this... uh, for example, the rundown, right? The rundown video. Mm-hmm. He's, yeah. he's saying that this rundown video is fair and accurate because he went to the guy's YouTube channel and downloaded it. <laughs> but that he has no way to know that. The interesting thing, though, is the rundown guy is readily identifiable. They could have subpoenaed him. They could have brought him in as a witness and said, OK, you know, let's lay the foundation for this. And that's that's a critical rule of evidence. This footage from the rundown should never have been let in without that guy testifying to it or someone with knowledge of the footage and the event saying, yeah, I was there and this is a fair and accurate representation. But we would have no idea if that guy cut out a 15 minute segment of video. Um, right. What what would have been said on that? Maybe maybe uh, Kyle Rittenhouse pulled out a, a picture of Adolf Hitler on video and that guy edited it out. I mean, the, the state should want to know that. And they they didn't do anything to verify that this is fair and accurate. And that's the bulk of the video that they showed came in this way. And the judge allowed it when he yeah. actually should not have done so. And so to to say that he was tipping the scale in favor of Kyle Rittenhouse, this judge was tipping the scale in favor of the jury um, throughout the entire mm-hmm. thing. He wanted the jury to make that decision. And we really saw that happen when Thomas Binger in his cross-examination of Kyle Rittenhouse, violates his Fifth Amendment right twice in a row. Once Mm -hmm. after being, you know, once at the beginning, and then once after being reprimanded immediately prior by the judge. That should have been a mistrial with prejudice on the spot. That should have ended the case. And if this case were not so high profile, I think it actually would have. Then we saw him right after that, again, violate one of the rules of evidence by trying to introduce the propensity evidence against Kyle Rittenhouse that the judge had made a pretrial ruling on and had reaffirmed that pretrial ruling just that morning. The fact that he did that and did not dismiss the case should tell everybody that he was in no way tipping the scale towards Kyle Rittenhouse. Plus, the final thing that shows that he was tipping this thing, uh, tipping the scale in favor of a jury decision was the inclusion of the provocation instruction, even over the judge's clear uncomfort or discomfort with the drone Queasiness. Footage. Right. Mm-hmm. He said, I was queasy when you brought it in. I'm more queasy about it now. And as you keep talking, I keep getting more queasy. And yet he still let that drone let footage. Let it in. Yep. <laughs> He let it in, and it was the entire basis for the provocation instruction. And I don't know if uh, people have seen this, but I, I did cover this on a follow-up video on my channel. There were uh, – we, we have the order that the jurors decided on the different counts. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. I heard about this. They decided the counts against Jump Kick Man and Anthony Huber first. That was on Wednesday. They decided that Kyle was not guilty of those right away on Wednesday. Then on Thursday, they decided he was not guilty in the shooting of Gage Grosskreutz, which is the last event of the evening. Then it was only on Friday that they finally determined the first incident, which was the shooting of Joseph Rosenbaum and the reckless endangerment of Richie McGinnis. So mm-hmm. that is where that entire provocation argument went. So we know that that argument in general and the focus on that argument by the state had impact on the jury to the point where that was the last holdout. That was the last decision that they made. So this judge is responsible for all that. Without instructing the jury on provocation, I think Kyle would have been not guilty much, much quicker. Do you think they got a little heads up from the bailiff or someone, the prosecutors? Um, They're not supposed to. I don't know uh, if they did or not. What I do know is that the prosecutors made the biggest mistake of the entire trial. Um, the biggest mistake, especially in hindsight, but it wasn't, we, we saw it at the time we called it out. They refused to accept the second biggest mistake of the trial, which was uh, Corey Sharafisi offering a mistrial with prejudice, yeah. or without prejudice, sorry, a mistrial without prejudice, which would have let them bring the case back, clear up any um you know, sort of evidentiary defects that they have, solidify their argument, and again, reframe their case. Because their case at their opening statement is vastly different from the case they made at closing statements. And that is because their uh, the, the gun charge got dropped, the curfew charge got dropped, this sort of generalized, he, he was in a bad place argument crumpled. Uh, during examination and cross-examination of the dis- different witnesses. And on- the only thing they were able to hang their hat on was that final provocation with the mystery footage that showed up. So they would have gotten a chance to reframe and restate their entire case before a fresh jury. They didn't do it. And it's only because the prosecution didn't take it. And I can't figure out why they would not have taken that gift that the defense tried to give them. Yeah, it's it's pretty stunning. Um, well, thank you, Nick Ricada. I understand you like barbecue a lot. I at least got that from your Instagram page. <laughs> I, I do. I like to, I like to uh, make and eat smoked meats. They're delicious. They are delicious. What do you cook on? Uh, I have a Weber smoke fire. Um, mm. it's, a, it's a pellet smoker by Weber. Uh, this is not brought to you by Weber. But um, uh, I, oh, how do you know? <laughs> well, that's true. I'm not brought no. to you by Weber, but I could Me be. Me neither. Darn it. <laughs> but no, I, I use the smoke fire. It's a pellet smoker. It, it produces very good results. Um, I'm a big fan of, of that. Uh, I would love to have, a, you know, a sort of more traditional uh, a stick burning um, smoker at some point. Mm-hmm. But, but for now, uh, this, this gets the job done. Um, and finally, what's the next case you think you'll be streaming and d- talking about? Well, everybody wants me to cover the Jolene Maxwell case, which mm. would be wonderful to cover, but it's in federal court. There yeah, will be, federal court. be no cameras. Um, there, mm. I've heard rumor that there may be an audio feed, so I'm looking into that. Um, huh. But I, I think the next one that is uh, that is on the official agenda that I'm looking forward to is the case of Kim Potter, the uh, taser, taser, taser police officer up in Minneapolis. Um, 
that that case is coming up and I have heard it will be televised and it's also in my state. So uh, mm-hmm. we got a triple whammy there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I will say one thing. You you guys have lots of interesting things going on in the Minneapolis Twin Cities area. <laughs> and I mean, uh, from overt acts of uh, uh, riot and terrorism and I mean, the left is here. The left is here. I just don't see people acknowledging it. I think you get it, though. Oh, I yeah. just didn't. That, that I don't think the judge got it in the Kyle Rittenhouse case. And uh, but I think that the prosecutor did. And I know that because of the way he treated that evidence, such as it was. Um, oh, yes. He uh, you know, the the prosecutor, uh, Thomas Binger, um, had made an election run in the previous election for, I believe, the Racine County District Attorney's Office. And uh, he has indicated that he was going to run again. So he had to walk the, you know, he had to toe the line of how do I approach this when my voting base is the people uh, who are against Kyle Rittenhouse. And, and, you know, that was that was one of the most interesting and subtle revelations in the case. Um, politics were not mentioned during this highly politicized case in the courtroom except for one time, and the person to bring it up was Thomas Binger. And I think that gave us uh, a stunning insight into the mindset of the prosecution. Um, This case was political and personal for them because, to me, it looks like they're trying to stamp a meal ticket off of it. And I, again, it's one of those things in prosecution that I think is a huge problem in our country. I do, too. I hope that Kyle's law does something about that, if in fact it can be adopted by multiple states and hold these guys accountable for setting up big political show trials with no evidence. Yeah, the, you know. this is something that should not be a politicized issue. It should not be political. We, we should be able to unite as citizens and say that malicious prosecution, uh, prosecution for um, incentivized personal gain for the prosecutors, these are bad parts of the criminal justice system. The idea that someone's life can be destroyed either through incarceration if they win or just through the media blasting of the person if they lose um, because, you know, Kyle's going to wear the scars of this prosecution for the rest of his life. That should be something we should all be against. Justice is supposed to be blind because justice is supposed to be doled out based on the facts and the law and nothing else. Mm -hmm. We'll leave it there. Nick Riccata, thank you so much for coming on the Adults in the Room podcast and for sitting for an interview for PJ Media. Appreciate it. Well, thank you, Victoria. I've had a wonderful time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple podcast app every time you listen. And give me a great review. Plus, of course, subscribe to the podcast. It makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs. And it makes us easier to find. Please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff. Yeah, we're still there. Using the names Victoria Taft or the Adult in the Room podcast on MeWe, Parlor, Minds, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to 1A Cast for imaging, editing, and production. 
The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, mischief managed.